0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. As has become tradition around here, I want to remind everyone about the Power Hour's email account. And of course, I can't do this alone because I always get it wrong. Therefore, I ask for my colleague, Travis, to help me out. How do people reach us? The Power hour at Heritage.org. You're a professional at that. I mean, it just... Rolls off your lips. I nail it every time. I'm impressed.
0: Yeah, you're doing that thing that my wife does with the... You're so good at it. You got to do it every time. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. I'll do it. (laughs) Please don't compare me to your wife anymore. Though I'm sure... You guys use the same tactics. Look, I'm just going to speak my mind.
1: (laughs) All right. fair, Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, we're getting a lot of good feedback and show ideas. In fact, today's very subject is something that a lot of people have requested. So let us know what you're thinking or just write to tell us a joke no matter what you write, even if it's scathing criticism, I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, I will respond personally. So write it down. One more time, Travis, what's that email address? org. Outstanding. Now, Rachel, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great, Jack, how are you?
1: I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm feeling pretty good. My allergies are less in my face and hopefully less in our audience's faces than they have been the last couple of weeks. I've been coffee. But I'm less coffee today, so I'm doing good. Good. Related
2: to that, how's the weather? The weather's great. I think it's a pretty nice day. Would you say that it's warming? I would say, yeah. It's Uh it's getting to summer. It's getting hotter.
1: Uh Travis, now I have to say you are looking dapper today. Is that a new shirt? I think
0: I wear this shirt about once a week, Jack, but I, I don't expect you to notice these things. <laughs> yeah, That's how is. you're very much not like my wife.
1: <laughs> I wonder if it's even appropriate for me to ask, but I noticed it, so I wanted to mention it, but whatever. It could be way, way worse, I suppose. I mean, as long as it's a compliment, I'll take it. It was a compliment. I wasn't saying, uh, is that a new ugly shirt? It's, an, it's, a, it's a new dapper shirt, I think, as I said. Anyway, I don't know if you noticed, but over the past few months, it's been getting progressively warmer. It's Seems like just a few months ago it was freaking cold out and today it's like 75 degrees. Well, even today it started out
0: much colder <laughs> earlier today and throughout the day it's gotten pretty hot so I'm
1: not sure what to make of that. And there are hurricanes all around, wildfires, and it all seems to be happening everywhere. What do you think of that?
0: I don't know. The, the wildfire in Canada seems like kind of a big deal.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll admit. I am, in case you didn't guess, being stupid here. It was an unsophisticated, admittedly, effort to open the door to the issue we're going to discuss today, which is global warming and climate change and the actual science behind it. Now, I don't need to tell you, but this is an important debate. On one side, we hear promises of global apocalypse around every corner, and on the other is the idea that changes in climate are natural and humans have virtually no impact. Now, of course, there is nuance between these two, but it seems to be the case with pretty much every issue, modern politics hardly has time for nuance. And I'll admit, I need to say, before we get into this, in case our audience didn't know, but I bet they do, I myself am guilty of this, because I certainly fall on one side of this debate. I have no business of doing so. I'm not a scientist, but I do. And it's not the apocalypse side, I'll tell you that. But we're not here today to hear me rant about climate policy, unless... That's what you guys want.
0: Well that's what I want, but I'm not sure I'm not sure our audience is really here for that.
2: We had we had a lot of jack rants last episode, so uh, we can uh, table for
1: a bit. <laughs> we'll table the jack rants for this episode, but come back next week and we'll see what <laughs> we can do. Now we are here to unpack some of the most pressing energy and environmental issues of day of the day. And certainly this fits that bill. I'd suggest that it's important for at least two reasons, of course a bajillion reasons, but at least two that I'm gonna bring up right now first is that it's ha- first is if it is happening at the rate many say it is then we need to do something we can't just sit around and let the oceans boil and Some all would those say bad
0: things it would be alarming <laughs>
1: it would be alarming second we see this administration and many special interests using climate as the rationale to justify its efforts to completely restructure our economy and our culture so we're looking at the livability of our planet from an environmental standpoint and the livability of our society and economic, or our society from an economic and cultural standpoint. Literally, I don't know that the stakes could be higher. Given this, you would think that political leaders our thought leaders, business leaders, everyone would, could set politics aside for a moment, maybe set aside their personal ambition, and I doubt this, but even their ego, and figure out exactly what's going on and determine what would be the right policy response. Unfortunately, as we all know, that is far from the case. It's not the case seeming with anything, but specifically with this, despite being told that there's a scientific consensus on what's going on, those of us that have spent any time at all looking at this subject know full well that there is no scientific consensus. So we're gonna spend some time today talking about climate science. Now, Travis, are you an expert on climate science?
0: I know about as much about climate science as I do about cryptocurrency. And if folks listen to that episode, um, let's go with very
1: little. Very little. Rachel, how about you?
2: I'm in the same camp as Travis.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me neither. (laughs) If we only had one of the world's top client scientists... To shed some light on this complicated issue If only, but guess what, Travis? I'm going to guess that we do. <laughs> we do. And it is an honor, therefore, to introduce Dr. Roy Spencer to our power, our audience. Now Travis and Rachel, I am telling you right now, Dr. Spencer is legit. So I hope that you brought some good, intelligent questions today. otherwise you are going to sound not very smart, just like I did not sound very smart earlier. Every
0: time somebody says legit, I think about MC Hammer's too legit to quit. And there was a video with, this is the DOE secretary, Granholm, and MC Hammer, both talking about fusion. I just wanted to throw that out. I just wanted to get that off my chest because that's been bothering me. That they, why is the DOE secretary doing videos with MC Hammer? But every time you say legit, I'm going to say too legit to quit.
1: I have a relevant story. But I'm not gonna. You met MC Hammer. I want to hear this story. I did not meet okay. MC Hammer. Let me get to the Sorry. business in hand here. Now I can't go through Dr. Spencer's entire resume, but I can give you some head, some uh, some highlights. He has a PhD in meteorology. He's the principal research scientist at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He was a senior scientist for climate studies at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Continues to work on NASA projects. You know, you know NASA's. Those are the guys who send rockets into space. Yeah, I'm a big fan. They're a big deal.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I'm, this is another tangent, but we need a lot of hydrocarbons to get those rockets up into space. But I, let's we do. Let's. Fo- I'm sorry.
1: Let's focus. Very good. Um, that's not it. He's done a million other things, but the last thing, no, the second to last thing I want to mention. He's an author writing a book. Uh, geared towards popular audiences called Climate Confusion, which, by the way, you can get on Amazon.com. So if you want to uh, learn more beyond what we talk about today, I suggest checking that out. And then the last thing I'm going to mention, this might not be the case after participating in this here podcast, but as of right now, Dr. Spencer is a visiting fellow with us here at the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. So, I mean, literally, there's no one else in the world better for us to talk to about this issue than Dr. Roy Spencer. Dr. Spencer, welcome to the Power Hour. Hi, Jack. Good to be with you. So, are you going to stick with us after that uh, introduction and introduction to the podcast?
3: I I don't think I have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way
1: we like it. That's the way we like it. So, very good. So, we're going to start things off just by getting to know you a little bit, if that's all right. Climate science isn't a homogenous thing, as I think it's often thought of, but instead it's a, you know, the climate's this incredibly complex system and studying it requires expertise across numerous different inter- interrelated disciplines. So I was wondering within that, where do you, where have you focused your work and where do you come in at?
3: Uh, well, what you said is very true. I mean, it involves, well, everything you can imagine in the physical world, you know, the, the atmosphere, the land, the biosphere, the ocean, ocean surface, the deep ocean, everything's interrelated, you know, it's it's all tied up in the climate system. Uh, my background is originally in meteorology, which people my age, there, there really wasn't climate science uh, back in the late 1970s. So, most of the people my age that went into this field, uh, went into it basically for the money, to be quite honest, because uh, global warming was getting to be a big thing in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so you know, my background is weather, but, but that's good because obviously clouds and things like that uh, are an important part of the climate system and, and sort of as yet a not well understood part of the climate system. Uh, And then my claim to fame, along with Dr. John Christie, was back uh, in 1989, 1990, we published the first method for monitoring global temperatures with Earth-orbiting satellites. And we've been doing that. We've been updating that data set every month since then. uh, And we'll continue
0: to
1: do so as long as we're kicking. Could you tell us a little bit about how the debate has shifted over the years. You mentioned, I thought, a really interesting point, which is that you, you, you began studying meteorology, and that sort of shifted into what now is known as, or I guess what now is known as climate science grew out of that study. How has that shifted over the years? Like, how, how has politics infiltrated that? Like, what happened that led to where we are now and how we look at this issue, both from a scientific standpoint and academic well, politics- standpoint?
3: The politics have been involved that been involved in it from the very beginning. Um, you know i'm I'm thinking back to when NASA's James Hansen testified in Congress uh, for Al Gore, I think Al Gore was the head of the science uh, Senate Science Committee at that point. and uh, and he had uh, Jim Hansen and uh, testify, and I think that was the summer of eighty eight, which was a hot summer in the United States. and Hansen basically said, you know, that he thought that the the hot summer we were having in 1988 was he was pretty sure was at least partly due to increasing greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels. And you know, the way he phrased it, it was very artfully phrased. It had like three or four levels of uncertainty, but it still he still made it sound alarming. And it's been like that ever since. It's it's been a series of like half-truths about You know the effect of adding CO2 to the atmosphere. Well, sure, it has some effect, but how much effect does it have? Is it something we should worry about? Uh, How much of the warming we've seen is actually due to that? Uh, How much can we expect in the future? Are there changes in weather associated with it? And ever since the beginning of this, there have been environmental concerns, environmentalists who have been involved in pushing the narrative that basically we're destroying the environment, we're destroying the climate system, we have to do something about it. We only have 10 years left. I mean, we've had we've only had 10 years left for the last 40 years, and we continue to only have 10 years left to fix the problem. Uh, so there's, there's been exaggeration involved in this all along from the very beginning. So it really hasn't changed much, except that virtually all the earth system researchers that are involved in it have signed on to the narrative because that's how they get paid. If there isn't a problem to study, then Congress doesn't give you money to study it. Uh, that's just the way it is. So in order so the, the the system is already rigged, okay, to support the narrative that climate change is a crisis, which I do not believe it is. And that we have to do something about it. Um, so th- yeah, there really hasn't been much of a change in the last thirty or forty years.
1: Where where is the nuance in the debate? Uh, I guess starting from the from the basics, I would ask. Okay, just, well the I'm, nuance gonna, Is climate change real
3: and you know where's yeah, the nuance? A, yeah, as an example, the, part of the nuance is 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 me. Uh, <laughs> I'm considered a lukewarmer. In other words, I believe that increasing CO2 into the atmosphere, which is dominantly from our burning of fossil fuels, is leading to a warming tendency. So, you know, that kind of gets me in trouble with some of the hardcore skeptics. Uh, But then I'm mostly in trouble with the environmentalists because I don't think it's a a serious problem. You know, the amount of warming we're seeing is fairly trivial. The, 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 The change in weather is basically non-existent. I mean, things that are attributed to climate change aren't, you know, aren't due to human-caused climate change. I don't care whether you're talking about forest fires in the West, uh, you know, Lake Mead losing water, uh, you know, so the water crisis in the West, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes. There's no change that can be traced to human-caused climate change. Uh, so the nuance is how serious is the problem? and is it something that we can or even should do something about because it's a problem that's not easy to fix as you well know is it something
1: we should do something about
3: well i think it's worthy of of study i think it's worthwhile investigating alternative energy sources uh, you know we may not have fossil fuels for hundreds and hundreds of years to come i don't know maybe we will maybe we won't Uh, to the extent that our supply of fossil fuels are dwindling, they'll gradually become more expensive over time, uh, as they become more expensive to, uh, extract. And therefore, you know, progress in alternative energy, uh, for instance, battery technologies or whatever, uh, you know, it makes sense that those alternative energy technologies will become increasingly competitive but they're not there yet as you well know, right. you know, they're, they're very expensive. Um, uh, they can only supplant a, a, a small fraction of global energy use. I mean, global energy use continues to go up and it's going up faster than, than even renewable sources can make up the
1: difference. Right, and um, thank God for it, I would argue. Yes, yeah, I agree. You mentioned a little bit about the scientific consensus and the lack thereof. And because that's something that we're inundated with all the time, I was wondering if you could give me a, or give us your thoughts on the so-called scientific consensus. Sort of what makes it – who makes it up? Like, how, how does anyone with a straight face say there's a scientific consensus when there clearly is not? And who are some of the folks and organizations or whatever – that people who are interested in understanding the other side of the climate debate could could turn to.
3: Uh, well, a consensus, I would say, uh, you know, there've been there've been surveys of scientists in the past, two or three of them over the years, and basically there there is you know a, a, a pretty strong majority of scientists that work in the climate field uh, that believe that. Increasing CO2 causes warming. Uh, But that's about the extent of the consensus. You know, there isn't a consensus about it being a serious problem. I mean, I I forget what the study was, but years ago there was a study that looked at, you know, what what do climate scientists say about how serious the problem is? And there's a lot of division amongst climate scientists about whether it's a serious problem. And so, you know, it's a problem worthy of study. Of course, they're going to say that because that's how they get their money.
1: Right. (laughs) Um yeah, that, that was the study. That was the um the journal article, I think, where the whole 97% came from. Well, now where? that that was a separate study. Yeah, that okay. that
3: one was very disingenuous and misleading. It basically <clears throat> I was actually part of the 97%. And I, I talked to one of the authors of that study when it came out, and I said, Listen, according to the way you've defined uh scientific consensus. I'm part of that 97%. And he said, well, but we didn't include you in the 97%. (laughs) But, you know, it was very innocuous. It was, you know, they basically went through thousands of published papers and found that basically, there were virtually none that disagreed with the idea that global warming is a problem. Well, yeah, I mean, most papers don't deal with whether global warming is a problem they deal with some minutia Mm -hmm. some you know isolated aspect of the climate system that people are trying to understand better and yeah they don't come right out and say this shows that global warming alarmism isn't necessary then they never say that because that's not a scientific that's not the way science is done you know that's that's politics which brings up one of the big problems in this, and it's been a problem ever since the beginning, is people, you know, let's, let's say the public in the United States, are guided by what they hear in the media. And what they hear in the media is almost always the most dire predictions put out there by a handful of scientists who have made a career out of making the most dire predictions. And it's the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads the, 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 the stuff that you hear in the news is always the worst case scenario. And so people in the public get the impression that, oh, I guess this is a real problem, but no, you're not getting, you're not getting a realistic understanding of where climate science is. If you're getting your information through the mainstream
1: news media. Travis and Rachel are, Dying to ask you questions, but I need to ask just one more. Do you ever, whenever you talk to the the people, the scientists on the other side of the debate, the people who present themselves as true believers in climate change, do like whenever you're just talking to them privately, do they say, "Yeah, we get where you're coming from. We're not so far away," and that they have to present in a certain way in order to, um, you know, meet the the, the expectations of the institution, or the funding, or that sort of thing? Or is everything that we see in the, the way people present themselves, is it authentic?
3: Uh, I'd say it's not authentic. The, when I've talked to climate scientists on the other side of the issue over the years, you know, on a one-to-one level, uh, they're much more reserved about the science. It's when they talk to the media that the exaggerations come out, and mm-hmm. it's it, it's always been that way. It continues to be that way. Um, you know, I've engaged them, asking you know, talking about what about this, what about that. You know, we don't even understand natural climate variability, and here you're assuming that all the warming is due to humans. How you can you do that? And their answer is always the same: that it's well, what else could it be? Okay, mm-hmm. and how do you answer something like that? Uh, it's kind of like, you know, what if we didn't understand, I'm, I'm gonna try to make a an, a an analogy here and I might fall flat on my face. What if we didn't understand cancers and somebody finally finds a connection, uh, something in the environment that actually can be demonstrated to cause cancer. And then, oh, okay, well, apparently all cancers are caused by that one thing, right? I mean, what else could it be? Right. There are no other explanations. It, it, it's it's that kind of thing. It, it's like the the person who lost their keys on a dark street, you know, and, and they, they only look where the street light is because that's where the light is. Well, you know, it could be that the keys are, are in the dark somewhere, but they're, they don't look there because there's no light. Well, that's climate science. There's a lot of things we don't understand about climate science that would impact our predictions of how much warming, how much climate change of all kinds would occur in the future, we don't understand the science well enough to even to put them in into climate models and yet climate scientists have faith that what they're doing is giving accurate forecasts but of course we know that's not the case climate models you know the 20 the two dozen or so climate models that are being developed and run around the world at different climate modeling centers in different countries on average produce twice as much warming for the past as we have observed. They have a serious problem. You know, they produce too much warming and that's something that, that the public doesn't ever hear about.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I wanted to pick up on your analogy because I, I think it's a very good. And I, I think the, the, the way that I would add to it is it's almost like if you found a link between cancer and sort of the modern high calorie, I would say enough calorie diet, and then you said, "Well, so we should go back to starving because that we had fewer rates of cancer w- when everybody was starving." This idea that we need to go to a low fossil fuel world is entirely backwards, and it feels like if the goal is human flourishing, which I think it should be, and and there are some that argue that you know the goal should be non impact on the environment, and I I reject that, and I don't I don't think they're right, but it, it is it is a weird conversation, especially when there's always. uh, there's a judgment injected so when you talk about climate scientists it's almost like you know the, the usual conversation you hear this on the hill you hear this in hearings and the media treatment of it it's almost like you're only allowed to have an opinion on the issue especially in terms of policy if you're a scientist but policy itself requires a value judgment so science itself doesn't give you policy it can't uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that and sort of how, how you've seen the, the lines blur where all of a sudden scientists say X. And then the thing that they're saying is usually, well, we need to dramatically reduce our use of fossil fuels. And that, that just seems like you're almost, you're asking the wrong person there because you, you need to get a broader view. And folks like me, I, I would say, you know, you should also talk to the economists. You should talk to the folks that know the energy policy world, all, all of that. I want to get your thoughts on sort of the... The, the posture of science as the only source that you need in order to inform policy.
2: Yeah, well,
3: I, I totally agree with you. The science can only take you so far. And, and e- even if scientists prove that there's going to be a certain amount of warming, of course, this is impossible. But even if we could prove there's going to be a certain amount of warming and climate change by the year 2100, what we do about it is entirely a different issue that you really shouldn't listen to scientists about because they, you know, they don't know enough about it. Like you said, you, you got to have policy experts, economists, even philosophers. You know, like Alex Epstein, you know, has has written books about this. You know that that for human flourishing, we need to be celebrating fossil fuels, not not demonizing them. Uh, it's a cost versus benefit thing, and and people have been led to believe that we can just like. Drop our
1: dependence on fossil fuels and start using renewables, and it ain't true i would I would even argue in addition to that, it corrupts the science anytime that you give anything a monopoly um it it, it almost instantly becomes corrupted and so if if the policymaker says i'll oh, follow the science and we'll do whatever the science the science is, and we'll fund the science then that creates obviously the um, the motivation for the science and the politician to collude to uh, create a, a certain outcome.
3: Yeah, I would say climate science at this point is hopelessly corrupted. Uh, I don't think there's any turning back, um, and I don't know how to fix it. I, I, I don't see how you fix it. The number of uh, skeptics, you know, that were mostly older, late in our careers, you know, established in our careers to the point to where we're not afraid to speak out. I've no younger scientists who who agree with me but they're afraid to speak out because they need to keep getting money from the government Mm -hmm. so they play the game to keep getting funding uh to stay in business
0: yeah so i've i've seen that same thing i I guess i'm fortunate to be at a think tank where i can speak my mind one thing that i'm curious about because if you're thinking about scientists just doing science one thing that uh, it seems pretty obvious they've crossed the line from an outsider point of view, is that scientists are now thinking in terms of marketing. They're thinking in terms of, well, you have to say this, even if it's outlandish, you have to make an outlandish statement because that's the only way to get people's attention. So now you see a whole bunch of folks empowered by scientists saying, climate change is an existential threat. And they make these sort of apocalyptic warnings. And you know, this is in the same vein as Al Gore in his movie it's almost like you have, to, you have to exaggerate the science in order to get people's attention. Is that really the role of science, though? I don't see that as the role of science at all.
3: No, I agree, but, you know, you have a purest view of science which, in the climate realm, no longer exists. And, Doctor- and oh, oh, sorry, I was you. just
2: going to say, too, kind of piggybacking off of what, what Travis said, it's this whole unprecedented Warming thing, right? So it's it's all about it's increasing at rates never seen, or, or the temperatures just rising like crazy. But I mean, is that is it truly unprecedented? Anyway, I mean, is there any
1: well, I would say we don't take those claims.
2: Like you said, since the '70s, this has been a, a conversation that's been ongoing. Right. So it was true then. Is it true now? Was it ever true? Um, can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Well, it has been warming, especially since the late 1970s. Uh, now the rate of warming we've seen isn't alarming from the standpoint of, of human affairs, uh, but it is larger than, I probably larger than what we've seen in the instrumental record going back to, let's say, the middle 1800s. Uh, whether it's as large as what we, what there was back in the, in the medieval times, the medieval warm period of about a thousand years ago, yeah, it might be warmer than then. We don't know because you know, we don't have, didn't have thermometers back then. All we have is proxy estimates of temperature, which I really don't think are accurate to a fraction of a degree. So we don't know. My opinion, is that most of the warming we've seen, uh, which has occurred mainly since the 1970s, is most of it is due to increasing CO2. Uh, but you know, I, it's only because I don't have any other explanation for it. But even at that, it's not an alarming amount of warming uh at this point and it's less than what the climate models are predicting and remember you know we i keep mentioning the climate models why that's important is because the warming in the climate models is what guides public policy on a global basis Mm -hmm. okay the climate models are taken as truth and in fact the ones that produce the most most warming are usually relied upon as oh this is what you know, could happen, right? Even though those are the ones that have been the most in error up to the present, they're still relied on for the biggest alarmist predictions. Uh, for instance, changes in the United States. You know, supposedly, uh, you know, agriculture in the United States is already hurting uh, because of, of global warming. It isn't true. The summertime, you know, that the growing weather, June, July, August, in the corn belt, you know, the twelve states that make up where most of the corn in the in the world is growing grown, has seen very little warming in the last hundred years, even since nineteen sixty. And yet crop productivity has been going up nearly year after year after year after year. Unless there's a you know a drought or a flood year. Uh, you know, we, we continue to break records, and that's happening all around the world. You know, with wheat yields, rice yields, soybean yields, corn yields, uh, it's, you know, things are getting better. And yet you hear in the news that they're getting worse. It's, it's, you know, what we're hearing in the news is totally opposite of what's actually occurring.
1: Yeah. The scary part is we see that in almost every aspect of culture and society that, um, whether you call it the establishment or the mainstream media or whatever, there are all these narratives out there that just run completely counter to everything that we should be able to see with our, our own eyes. And perhaps it's um, in other areas more so than energy and environment, but it is certainly um, front and center in energy and environment. And it becomes the, the uh, foundation for so much of what the government's doing to expand its own power um, when we know, you know, putting aside the, the climate change stuff, the, the the particulate matter and the actual pollutants that we've had to deal with in the past are all just being reduced to such low levels and with e- in every possible way. Um, humans have been doing pretty good, um, cleaning the environment and growing the economy. And I guess that just doesn't work well for a... A, uh, a government and bureaucracy that always wants to go in one direction.
3: Right, and, and one of the things that makes it worse is, at least you know in my lifetime, the quality of education in the public schools has been declining. People are no longer, you know, kids in school are no longer taught how to think, they're taught what to think. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we have people coming out of of high school and going into college and they don't even have the basic skills necessary to learn advanced subjects in college. You know, all I I see people complaining, teachers and and professors complaining, uh, you know, that they have to teach remedial math to high school graduates. You know, this 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 wouldn't have happened 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, what the heck are they teaching kids in public school? I, I don't understand it. But one thing for sure is we have a larger and larger segment of the population growing up now who cannot think critically. They're j- basically just
1: absorbing whatever they're told to believe in the news. Yeah, this inability to think critically, I think, is is an interesting subject to, to look at a little bit, uh, especially from your perspective, spending so much of your time in the university environment. I'm curious, what, how are students that come into to the university, how are they looking at climate change? Um, has that shifted over time, the, 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 the perspective of students? And also, I guess, and this goes to the, the ability to think critically, have you noticed that when subject to more information, have those views and perceptions changed? as students matriculate tough word for me um through the university system
3: well the latter part of of your question uh i i don't have enough information to answer but i i would say that the first part of your question uh the vast majority of students that are coming into the university uh believe the hype you know we're destroying we're destroying the climate system, we're destroying the environment, they want to be part of the solution. So they get into an environmental field, uh, to where they can help out, um, you know, it gives them purpose, meaning to their lives. Um, yeah, And so if you tell them, well, you know, we really don't have a problem, you're kind of messing with their whole purpose in life. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that that's a. Now, this gets beyond climate change science, but hey, it's it's our podcast. We can talk about what we want. I think that that's an issue that we are having to deal with in a bunch of different spaces of public policy where in the absence of the Soviet Union, in the absence of widespread poverty, in the absence of all of these things that humanity or culture or society or the nation has had to rally around, we're getting off into these sort of weird sidetracks to, to sort of get our attention and, and God knows I'm not wishing for the rise of the Soviet Union or abject poverty to, to uh, spread across society but we need as a culture some way to, um, to reorient ourselves to something more positive than some of the weird things that are going on right now in a bunch of different places.
3: Yeah, well, it's a trite phrase that we learned growing up, that if if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, I remember, you know, as a teenager, my dad would, he, he, he was a product of World War II, you know, spent his time in the Navy on submarines during World War II in the Pacific. And he would often speak of freedom, the importance of freedom. And it never made any impact on me, because I don't know what it's like to live without freedom, right? And th- yeah. and that's what our country is like. People grow up in our country, and they don't understand what it's like to live without freedom. You don't know the cost of freedom. You don't know how special it is unless you've lived without it. So it's that kind of thing to where they don't even know what you're talking about.
0: Well, isn't that a a better example of a true existential threat is like a, you know, War mongering regime that's trying to take over Western Europe and the entire world. I mean, that, that's a more that's an easier example to point to. Like that's the bad guy, as opposed to since then it seems like we we got into this weird, you know, the the Club of Rome stuff. Like we we need to become degrowthers, and we're gonna run out of stuff. It, the narrative has changed from we're gonna run out of resources to then that has been sort of empirically proven wrong. Now it's, oh, we have plenty of resources, but if we use them all, then we're going to cook the planet. And so we sort of shifted the apocalyptic narrative. I think in the absence of a true bad guy, we, we do just have a tendency to do that. I, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sort of how the, especially the psychology of the students coming in, if they truly believe that sort of an advanced, a modern Western lifestyle is cooking the planet and is dooming us all. I mean, that's... uh. That's got to be a very depressing way to view your own existence, right
3: right well i I don't think many of them have that um, sort of fatalistic view that that goes to that extreme i've I've engaged a few people by email over the years that are 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 like really despondent because they believe that that we are destroying the environment. There was a guy in in Australia that I used to exchange emails with that was honestly believed that the amount of co2 that we are that we are putting into the atmosphere was reaching the point where he wouldn't be able to breathe, you know. (laughs) Um, And you try to reason with them. And uh, for some people, you know, it's like they want to believe these things and there's no reasoning with them. so, you know, I don't have much to add to that, just that, you know, people have been led to believe many things which are simply not true.
2: Uh, well, oh, sorry. Sorry. i sorry, I,
0: I do want to touch on at least two things. We, we don't have to touch on them right now. And I hate to cut you off from Rachel, but I, I do want to at least ask a couple questions that someone in that sort of uh, climate apocalypse camp, the existential threat camp might raise. And the two things that I've heard are the attribution of specific events like droughts and wildfires and things like that to climate change. That's the one thing. And it sounds like you're not buying into that. I'd like to pull on that thread a bit more. And the other one is, yeah, the observed changes we've seen so far are not that big of a deal, but we're about to hit a tipping point and we're about to go off a cliff in one way or another. Um, I, I, I do want to touch on those two points because it does, you know, I don't really have a good answer for those, but it sounds like you you probably do. I wanted to, to hear it.
3: Yeah, there's, there's no evidence on that second point. There's no evidence that we're approaching a tipping point. It's, it's easy for scientists or environmentalists to claim that and you can't like disprove it. It's just that there isn't evidence that that is occurring. Okay. So while you can't prove that it's not going to happen it's like there's, there's really not any evidence that the climate system works that way. It, it's, the climate system appears to be more resilient than we're giving it credit for, and the climate models have not yet caught up with that fact. Now, when it comes to individual events, you know, wildfires out in the West are almost entirely the result of bad forest management and too many humans living where it gets too dry in the warm season. You know, eventually, you know, people have accidents. Well, even people we we know purposely set fires out there. You got, you know, electric lines that aren't being maintained and spark and cause, you know, fires to occur where there was too much underbrush that that was allowed to build up that wasn't cleared out. That's the reason for wildfires, uh, generally speaking. Yet it's blamed on drought, right? Well, there's no evidence that there is any long-term change in drought conditions in the West. I mean, in the West, every year, every every summer is drought. I mean, that's that's the nature of living in the Western, especially the southwestern U.S. Uh, it's a desert area. It it wasn't meant for human habitation, let alone tens of millions of people. So, for instance. You know the the colorado river feeding lake powell and lake mead you know lake mead is now you know it, it's it's reaching record low levels um uh, and it's a reservoir you know the dam uh, hoover dam was built there uh to produce electricity and to gather water that can be then you know siphoned off and used by las vegas and other other uh other cities and you know we, we keep being told that this persistent drought in the West is, is causing the Colorado River to dry up. Well, I looked at this, and if, if people wanna look at the details and it's using data produced by the United States government, this is not a secret. Uh, they can go to my blog, drroyspencer.com and just, well, or Google uh, Colorado River and Roy Spencer, and, and you'll find my blog where I show that the water supply into Lake Powell and Lake Mead has not changed since we've been monitoring it. There is no long-term trend. Yeah, there's decade-to-decade variations, but they also monitor how much water is being siphoned off, right? I mean, because it's it's a public resource that's used uh, for for water, for, for munis- municipalities, <clears throat> and what has changed is in recent decades, especially since the year 2000, water use you know, has gone up dramatically. So we're just simply taking more water out of these re- reservoirs than can be replenished by snowmelt in the Upper Colorado River Basin. I mean, that's where most of the water comes from. It doesn't come from rain falling on the flatlands. It comes from snow that falls in the wintertime. There's no, not been any long-term change in that. So they have estimates, yearly estimates, of how much water is available to the Colorado River system. There's been no long-term change. There's no drought-induced decrease in the amount of water available to Lake uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell. It's all overuse, you know? Millions of people wanna live where the sun shines all summer and it doesn't rain. <laughs> and yet they want their water.
2: Right, Um. and kind of to to talk about that a bit, I think one aspect in kind of what you're saying here is that a lot of times these are local, regional issues. Um, And I think kind of this discussion of of global warming, it kind of puts this idea that it's this global contribution to this problem, right? That this isn't specific to certain regions of the U.S. or, or other countries. And that's something that we've kind of talked about here, about how these policies here aren't necessarily even impactful to that that larger problem of global warming per se so i, I if you could talk a little bit about that and kind right. of
3: right yeah the implication when people talk about you know this persistent drought in the west is that it's part of a global process global warming is causing droughty areas to get more drought stricken and therefore we need to do something about it, and it will not only help if we do something about it. Not only will it help drought in the West; it'll help you know the rest of the world, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's it's implied that these regional issues, uh, things that happen regionally, are part are evidence uh, of a global problem, which I don't think they are, because the data don't support it, and therefore we need to you know everybody in the in the world needs to attack the problem. So that our regional problems can go away. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Well,
0: I've I've seen the same thing where it's it's almost implied that if a state does a a state specific action like the portfolio standards, or if California would just stop using fossil fuels, then the drought issues in California would somehow be improved through yeah, this well, whole global warming thing. Where... Well, of course,
3: of course, that's ridiculous, um, and. Of course, a lot of the decisions that are made in California about, you know, let's say how many EVs they're going to want to produce by some year, uh, what they end up doing is they end up just outsourcing their pollution to other states and other countries, right? I mean, that's that's part of what we do when we buy everything from China, right? We can reduce. United States has has, has reduced our carbon emissions, okay. But all we've done is outsourced our carbon emissions to China in order to build the stuff so that we have stuff to buy at Walmart.
0: Um, and I, I wasn't prepared to go on an EPA rant, but I, I will go on a mini rant. That's exactly what EPA is doing with on a couple fronts here. They have a, a greenhouse gas emissions rule for power plants. So it's basically the whole thing where we've seen it in Germany where our plan is almost explicitly to deindustrialize the U.S. and sort of outsource the the Heavy industry to uh, other places like China, and then there's the EV mandate, which they call a tailpipe emissions standard, but they want two out of every three cars to be EVs by 2032, and it's the same idea where you know they're they're doing this in sort of a greenhouse gas posture, but it ends up being this weird industrial policy that uh, I'm not sure the even the global impacts on on CO2 itself will will even show up just because all all this stuff is just getting outsourced to China.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. You know, one of my fears is with the stuff that Travis just pointed out is that even if the scientific truth were to become understood broadly, um, that policy is getting so far out ahead of things that, it would, it's hard to turn back. Like it's almost as if they're using the threat of global warming as the justification to get these cultural and economic policies in place without really caring about the actual science behind it. there's I'm saying it seems like that. That's what I believe to be the case. I don't want to misrepresent what's happening. I believed it to be the case, that there is an effort beto- uh, to, to, to move economic and social policy to a point of no return almost, that it becomes almost impossible. To revert back to to where the nation would have been absent those government interventions.
3: Oh, I agree. It's it, it's it's all, you know once something gets established by the government, it's al- almost impossible to remove it, especially if it's you know supposedly uh, with the with the goal of, of saving humanity, right? EPA, of course, their job is to make things cleaner, right? And the, the trouble we have with EPA is that they don't know when to stop. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget being at a um, a Carolina Air Pollution Control Association meeting uh, somewhere in, in North Carolina. And somebody from the EPA got up and gave a talk. Now, this is a meeting where most of the people in the audience represent industries, industries that have to abide by various state and federal uh, environmental regulations. And I was, I was watching from the back of the room the, the, you know, what people were saying, their expressions. And, and when this person from the EPA got up there and said, we at the EPA want to make things cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, uh, something to that effect. And everyone just stared at each other with their jaws dropping to the floor, kind of like, "What?" You know, because that's EPA. That's that's their mandate right. is right. to make things cleaner. It's really not to determine whether there is any harm in having things being a little bit dirty. I mean, how much would you have to spend to to make sure the inside of your house is one hundred percent clean? It's not possible. You know, it's not possible. And, how, uh, and the same is true of the environment. You can't make it 100%. We can't clean up 100% of our messes. Yet that's what the EPA tries to do. 90% isn't good enough, then 95% isn't good enough,
1: and then even 99% isn't good enough for the EPA. And at, at some point, the drive to make things cleaner begins taking away from human flourishing and other aspects of their life. Well of so, course,
3: because it, it costs money. Right. What you where are you gonna take the money from? You the, the wealth that's required for that. you gonna take it from health care?
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of things that um that once established, people can't live without <laughs> socialized health care is another great example of that.
0: And it's not just the cost, it's the preventing activity that should should be going on. So yeah. I mean, a, a great example is so if you're taking PM 2.5, if you're taking that standard down to basically background levels, you're basically telling everybody that they can't do industry. And w- one thing is like, well, w- we're going to end up paving a bunch of dirt roads to comply with the new rule. It was kind of the the <laughs> unspoken part of the rule that's like, well, how are you going to comply with this? It's uh, apparently dirt roads are a problem and we need to pave them, which is ironic to me because paving uses a lot of asphalt and sort of heavy industry to do that. So it's just one of those weird things, like if you're trying to get below background levels, which EPA is trying to do in a lot of ways, uh, you end up with some really absurd policies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Dr. Spencer, we're, we're, we're about to wrap up here before too long. There, I was wondering if I could just throw a few nugget questions out at you. And these are things, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm transparent, I tend to be more on the highly skeptical side of this and there are a couple of things that have spoken to me over the years that I wanted to get your take on. Um, one is this idea that um, and I guess you touched on this a little bit but I'd like for you to talk about it explicitly that we're coming out of a ice, uh, an ice age anyway and that um, any you know, any warming that, that, that's happening has to be put in the broader context of Thousands of years of of cooling or at least hundred, hundreds of years of cooling. Is that is that a legitimate? Um, way of looking at this is that something that, that, that could be driving warming just natural variations uh, It's possible
3: uh one of the things I uh, let's get away from the specific example of, of ice ages, which you know you're talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. We're talking about warming that's occurred in, let's say the last 50 years. You know, it's a much shorter time frame. Why have we seen significant warming in the last 50 years? Well, to partly answer your question, one of the things I, I try to point out, and this is a little science lesson, but it, it, it's something that everyone can grasp. All temperature change is related to an imbalance between energy gain and energy loss. You got a pot of water on the stove that's heating up. Why is it heating up when you put it on a, a low flame? Well, it's because the energy gained by the water is, 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 is more than the rate of energy lost by the water to its surroundings. But, you know, you put a pot of water on the stove and eventually the the, the water comes to a certain temperature. Let's say it's not boiling. It, it warms up to the point where it's losing energy at the same rate it's gaining from the stove. And that's like the stable climate system where you've got energy coming in equals energy being lost. Now, the warming, we know that the warming we've seen in the climate system in the last 50 years, if you measure... Uh, the, the hundredths of a degree warming that's occurred in the oceans, all the way down, you know, to 2,000 meter depth, um, we know that the energy imbalance required to do that is much less than 1%, the energy imbalance is much less than 1% of the flow of energy into the climate system from the sun, the flow of energy out of the climate system in the form of infrared radiation out to outer space. That's how we lose energy. Uh, In other words, the imbalance in the global energy budget is so small, it's smaller than we know than our knowledge of any of the natural energy flows in the climate system. Okay, And that's easily demonstrated. That's that's not a skeptic talking point. That's basic climate physics, basic energy physics. Uh, So what that means, what does that mean? What that means is climate warming, the recent warming of the last 50 years could be mostly natural and we would never know it.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: We would never know it because we can't measure the rates of energy input into the climate system from the sun to that level of accuracy, we can't measure the rates of energy lost to outer space uh, by the climate system to that level of accuracy. So once again, you know, they say, well, it's due to humans. Well, it, it could be. That's the only reason, you know, that anybody can come up with right now. But we don't know the natural energy flows in and out of the climate system to that level to know that it's due to humans. We really don't. Mm-hmm. So there's the this level of uncertainty in the whole climate debate on the basic physics that I think even a lot of climate scientists don't understand. They have so bought into the narrative themselves that you know they're convinced that basically they've they've convinced themselves of the accuracy of their
1: own press releases. Very very good. Um, I appreciate that. That's something that. Um... You know I think that's really the, the the crux of the matter is we don't know what we don't know in many regards and leaving some hubris to the side would probably benefit everyone. Travis I, Yeah, I see you have something.
0: So I've got one final question because I I try to be objective about things in general but especially when things get so heated like climate policy debates and things like that I am very eager to grasp onto anything that is truly objective and wh- one one data set that I like to point back to, especially to as a counterpoint to the existential threat narrative is, I mean, we've collected pretty good data on climate related deaths over the past several decades. I think we're approaching about 100 years of, of data on that. Uh, I think it was 1924 was kind of the starting point for that. Curious if there's, you know, your opinion on that data set, first off. <clears throat> And then the question about sort of what else is there that's, that is objective, that's a hard number that we can follow over the years and say, are things getting better or worse? Because I, I'm eager to get my hands on the most objective sets. I, I, I can only point to that one as sort of, a, you know, even if temperatures are changing and all of that, the question is, is the climate getting worse for human beings and according to that data set it seems like the answer is no i'm curious what else you would put in that category of sort of what to follow going forward
3: well it's more a matter of well the example that you gave is and i know the graph you're talking about and i i I know about as much about it as you do which shows you know that there's been a drastic decrease in climate related deaths over the last hundred years and it's of course it's partly because we protect ourselves from natural disasters now in a way that we couldn't back then. You know, we have weather forecasting, and you know, we have homes we can escape into. Um, as and and also, you know, heat versus cold. You know, it, it's still it's still true that um, excessive cold still kills far more people than excessive heat does. Uh, so yeah, there there's that. Uh, In the United States, of course, we're, you know, one of the few places in the world that has to deal with a a significant tornado threat. Uh, Major tornadoes uh, in in the United States have gone down by, I think, about 50% since monitoring started in the 1950s. Uh, So, you know, whenever you hear about, you know, a major tornado outbreak, uh, which used to be when I was younger, you know, they were pretty regular. They're, they're not, they don't happen very often anymore. But of course, when they do happen, uh, the media is quick to jump in and say things like, oh, well, this is the kind of thing we can expect more of with climate change. Well, no, it isn't. You know, the history is that major tornado outbreaks have gone down substantially since the 1950s. Uh, hurricanes. Uh, you know, if you look at hurricanes as a global thing, which you have to because there's changes in, in in atmospheric circulation patterns, that you know, one year the Pacific will get a lot of hurricanes, the next year the Atlantic will get a lot of hurricanes. You have to look at it as sort of a global statistic. There's been no long-term change in hurricane activity that, that can that can be established with any confidence. Uh, and that but that data only goes back to the early 70s when we first had satellites that could see all of these storms uh, no matter where they occurred in the tropics uh you know bjorn lomborg uh is is a good one to ask about that kind of question um there's others you know in the skeptic community that that are good ones to ask uh i'm I'm more on the science side and and monitoring temperatures and stuff like that
0: well so i have a i have a science follow-up are we getting more certain about client about climate sensitivity over time. It seems like there's still a lot of uncertainty about sort of how exactly how sensitive the global climate is to, to CO2 in the environment. And I guess that's the if yeah, if, we, good. If, excellent, if if we if we, were, if, if, if we were if we were good at this we'd be getting more clear about that sensitivity over time, right? Right. You would think so.
3: Back in the 1980s when the whole climate modeling enterprise got started, the various climate models produced a wide range of warming for a doubling of atmospheric CO2. You know, we're, we're, right now we're like halfway to doubling of pre-industrial CO2, so, but that's sort of a baseline. They, they, they check to see, they, they run these models to see how much warming do they produce uh, with a doubling of the pre-industrial CO2 level. And the range uh, of variability between the models was about a factor of three. And that was back in the 1980s when this was a new enterprise, climate modeling. Uh, Now with the most recent models, which you would think would be greatly advanced after many tens of billions of dollars being spent on the enterprise, there is more than a factor of three disagreement between the various models. You would think they would be converging to some sort of answer and they're actually coming up with a wider range of answers than they were before. So how can you trust science that's supposedly based on basic physics when the answers
1: the different climate models give are so varied? I keep trying to cl- to, to bring the conversation to a close, Dr. Spencer, where you keep bringing things up that make me want to ask another question. Um, on this climate modeling issue, could you just tell us from a layman's perspective how do they work like what is the model how do they work and how why is there so much variation from model to model
3: uh, climate models are an outgrowth of weather prediction models they're they're basically the same kind of computerized model uh, but they have to have a lot more processes in them and they have to be careful to like conserve energy and conserve water because you know, a weather forecast model, they're run every six to 12 hours at weather forecasting centers around the world, uh, but they're only run out for, let's say, seven days, 10 days, 14 days. A climate model has to stay stable out for decades, if not centuries, of runtime, okay? So these climate models, then you have to start looking at what kind of processes in the models can sort of start accumulating errors. Uh, especially, I'm, I've always talked about water vapor, what happens to water vapor in the atmosphere. You know, evaporation at the surface is, is water vapor is the, is the main greenhouse gas, you know, not CO2, water vapor is. So obviously what happens with water vapor is very important. Uh, the source of water vapor is surface evaporation, but what the models don't do a good job of is knowing, we don't even know this from a, from a scientific standpoint, changes in precipitation processes that's what removes water vapor and that is extremely complicated how do precipitation systems change with warming to either remove more or less water vapor which is our main greenhouse gas you know there have been studies done and published that showed that's a major uncertainty and yet they sweep that uncertainty under the rug so you've got these models that um basically have to deal with these, what I mentioned before, these very teeny tiny changes in the energy balance of the climate system. And small errors can accumulate over time because there are, well, there are known unknowns, but there are probably also unknown unknowns involved that aren't even included in the models yet.
1: That's interesting. Um, Thank you so much for that. Now. As promised, I have one last question for you. And you kind of touched on this a little bit. And you said you don't know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do we return the debate to something that's more about uncovering science and not just about perpetuating a, a political objective? Like, How do we reverse this, 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 um, this approach that we have now to climate change that really isn't about science, it's all about politics? Do we have any hope? I,
3: I I don't think well you know I'm I'm kind of skeptical on this <laughs> skeptical I'm kind of skeptical on this issue I I don't think there's any hope of reversing it I think there is hope of minimizing the damage mm-hmm. before we do too much damage to humanity uh, so the the debate is important I used to have this discussion with with uh, Rush Limbaugh and uh, before he died he told me he thought uh, that we were losing this the the debate on this issue that was his you know he would he would never say that on the air because he always tried to be upbeat but he he felt like we were losing and i i kind of feel the same way we're losing the the overall debate but i think we can still minimize the damage um because obviously if we just said let's just go ahead and do what the environmentalists want uh there would be a huge amount of human suffering and damage as a result
1: yeah yeah Well, Dr. Spencer, I want to thank you for taking some time to help us engage in this debate today. I hope that some of our listeners, hopefully all of them, found it worthwhile, and they'll be better able to to engage in this discussion as as they engage their friends, families, and colleagues. So thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, as I always say, if you enjoyed the podcast, Tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Rachel, Dr. Spencer, any final words? I feel like
0: I'm supposed to talk about the email again. Talk about the email Please again. Please email us, heritage.org. We'll read it, we'll respond to it. It means a lot to us, For you know. The,
1: the, the engagement is, is good for us. Rachel, I have one final question for you. How do people find this here podcast?
2: You can find The Power Hour anywhere you get your podcasts. Simply search The Power Hour Heritage for access to our full episode library.
1: And once you do, subscribe so it comes to your inbox every time we publish one. Dr. Spencer, thank you again so much. We really appreciate your time. There you go, folks. Remember to email us and thank you for spending an hour with us. See you next time. Bye,
2: y'all.